name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're back after a short pause where we held our annual general meeting in May. For those of you who attended, spoke at, or sponsored the event, thanks a lot for your support. We really appreciate it, and it was great to see so many of you in person once again. If you were at the AGM, you'll know the growth of the crypto derivatives market was a prominent theme. We heard from a number of crypto firms, traditional financial institutions, and regulators on the opportunities and challenges for this asset class. We also discussed the progress ISDA is making on developing specific contractual standards for the OTC crypto derivatives market. In this episode, we're going to delve down into the technology underlying the crypto market, distributed ledger. Specifically, we'll look at how this technology is currently being used and which parts of the derivatives market stand to benefit the most. I'm here with ISDA's CEO, Scott Amalia. And Scott, can you explain why we're discussing this topic now? Sure. As you said, we talked a lot about crypto at the AGM and the coins and the services, but we really didn't talk so much about the underlying technology. DLT doesn't just underpin the crypto market, but it also has the potential to revolutionize financial markets by bringing a lot more automation and efficiency to what is a very resource-intensive back-office process. Now, just looking at the current processes for managing collateral, it's complex, highly manual, and prone to error. Unbelievably, fax machines are still used in some cases. We think there's a strong case for overhauling how things are being done, and we're thinking about the future. The next question is, how does DLT figure into this future? Well, we have a great guest who can really give us the ins and outs of distributed ledger and blockchain, Yuval Ruse. Yuval is co-founder and CEO of technology firm Digital Asset. Prior to becoming CEO, he served as CFO and Chief Operating Officer of the company, Before Digital Asset, Yuval held positions at Citadel and DRW Trading, so he brings a really great perspective on how technology is changing derivatives markets. So, Scott, I'll hand it straight over to you. Hey, Yuval, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Scott. So let's talk a little bit about the derivatives market. You know, as you know, derivatives markets are riddled with legacy systems that are often complex, highly manual, paper-based, and not easily interoperable. Smart contracts and distributed ledger technology have the potential to revolutionize these processes and make them more efficient. Which areas of the market do you see the biggest opportunity for this potential disruption? And even if it's not disruption, how do you think about the evolution of these markets from a technology standpoint? Yeah, so first of all, I think that you know a lot of people like to talk about disruption because disruption is cool. We like to see ourselves as enablers for those that have a vision how to improve markets to be the ones that improve markets and as a result of that there are players that get disrupted that don't agree with the vision or are too slow to react to changes and and i think that that's not unique to this technology i think that that's just true to any technology trend you touch on the derivative markets they are large and they are super critical I would say they are not unique in they're full of manual processes, no standardization, no interoperability. I think this is pretty similar trend that we see in many other markets in financial services and actually also in different industries. I think that one of the very interesting opportunity is OTC derivatives. And actually, I would say that your organization 
have pioneered really thinking about how this technology, especially smart contracts, can bring some of this standardization. One thing that people should not be mistaken when they hear standardization is that it doesn't mean that all legacy systems have to be replaced with new infrastructure, but it's really standardizing the interaction and the processing across different counterparties. Every organization should still have the ability to process in-house in their own ways, but there should be an agreement. And I think that really where is the CDM has tried to lead the market to is really saying, well, we shouldn't just standardize how do we communicate with one another, uh, what is the trade detail, but we should also agree how we're going to process the asset on each other's side. And I think leave that implementation to each organization. And I think that I think that that's really a very good example of how this technology could bring standardization and as a result, a lot of efficiency by reducing breaks, which are happening daily. Well, thank you for the nice plug on CDM. That's absolutely right. We're trying to establish that common taxonomy in which we describe lifecycle events. So everybody is working off the same page and doing so in a consistent fashion. And then we let innovators, whether it's your firm or other firms, take that standard and scale solutions that are automated, cost-effective, et cetera. So we're excited about that. We are very focused on two applications right now. One is the digital reg reporting. Regulators are changing their regulatory reporting requirements, and we see the opportunity to say, all right, let's agree a best practice on how we report that is consistent with the expected outcome that they want. Use CDM as that description and automated solution, and then push it to them using that taxonomy so it's completely consistent. And then we adjust it for every different regime or jurisdiction. The other area that we're really interested in, and happy to take your feedback on either one of these, but processes to manage the exchange of collateral. We've got the initial margin requirements for non-cleared trades. The collateral life cycle is about as antiquated as anything and falls into the area where that I described, highly manual, not very automated, can be moving much more rapidly. And one area that I think we've thought about in the blockchain is this payments area, and which is what collateral is, right? And the payment. So what do you think about the collateral space and, and how it could be innovated? Yeah, I, I'll take both of them. And I think they're both great use cases. If you think about reg reporting, I think that it's it's an interesting thing that happens in financial services and, and other industries where two counterparties come to an agreement on a trade or a transaction. And really you have at that point of time, the best piece of information. And what ends up happening is that once that trade was consummated, effectuated, and was confirmed to both parties, a lot of things then happen based on what both parties think they have agreed during the trade. And I'm saying deliberately think, because the reason there are breaks and issues in the industry is because we all know that not everything gets processed correctly after the fact. And I think that that's a big missed opportunity because at one moment of time, you have the source of truth when those two parties have come together. When you start thinking about reg reporting, I mean, it's a great example. I can't necessarily state factually, but I remember hearing from a few sources that 
a bunch of the issues with reg reporting is not lack of reporting, but it's lack of reporting accurately with the right format at the right time. And to me, that's really not what reg reporting was trying to do. It was trying to bring visibility into activity that happens in the market. If you start thinking about, for example, OTC derivatives, if they traded via smart contracts, why isn't the reg reporting just a feature that when a trade gets consummated, a reg reporting just automatically gets reported from that one source of truth in a very standardized fashion at the time that the trade happened? Take it even one step further. I think that I see a future where regulators will own or have nodes in some of these networks and actually be able to see real-time regulatory reporting being transmitted to them. When you start thinking about volumes and complexity of markets, that's really what I think you would want from your regulator is to be able to regulate markets when things happen, where I would say that for the most part today, the capability is really just to regulate post-fact when things happen, and generally speaking, with great latency, and I'm saying latency not in seconds, minutes, hours, but probably days, weeks, even months or years. And I think that that's a big opportunity. We had conversations with regulators on a very similar topic, and I think that this is a, it's a great opportunity. And I think that OTC derivatives, again, or any other type of derivative trade that can be represented as a smart contract could actually show the benefits of the technology, but also just give regulators a good tool to be a proactive regulator in real time rather than post-fact. So that's on the on the regulatory reporting. I don't know if there's anything you would like to add to that. I think that covered it. Let's move to collateral. So if you think about crypto markets, how they started, they were very isolated liquidity centers. So if you were a global player that wanted to trade on a lot of these venues, you effectively had to collateralize yourself in every venue. And we all know, I would assume that most of the listeners on this podcast are aware of financial services and how they operate for the most part. Except for my mother. She's an ardent listener, but we'll just, I'll <laughs> explain it to, to her later. your mother, yeah, but yeah. We'll, we'll explain later, is really that, you know, as a financial institution, your financial performance has to do a lot with how well you manage your collateral, how efficient you use your liquidity in global markets. And in crypto, if you wanted to have, just making up an example, a $50 million trading ability, in every trading venue, because you didn't know where liquidity would be at any given point in time. And let's just assume that there were five major liquidity centers for crypto. You had to have $250 million of collateral because that was the only way. There was no way of moving collateral across these venues in an efficient way. You had to go to fiat, use international payments, which we know are not really real-time or efficient. And that was the way to do it. And, and then came this amazing innovation of a stable coin, which really said, let's just digitize collateral, aka dollars, and make this thing called a stable coin, which we are seeing now has grabbed the front lines with what happened with Terra Luna. But we can we can talk about that later. 
but really gave the ability for trading companies or investors to say, okay, you know what, I really need to have 10, 20 million dollar liquidity in every venue to be able to react in real time. But every, the rest, the 30 million dollar that I want to have as a limit, I will have that floating as a stable coin that I could actually move almost in real time between these trading venues. And I think that if you now bring that to the world of financial services, and you think about collateral, generally speaking, I think that the opportunity is massive. I think that we're seeing the proposal from FTX, and I'm not here to judge if it's good or bad, but to me, what's more interesting about that proposal is the fact that they have the ability to even do that, right? The ability to call in margin every 30 seconds, right? That the, the fact that there is that capability, I don't know if 30 seconds is the right time or it should be five minutes or twice a day, but the fact that they can call on that margin in real time to me is very powerful because we know that markets will have their average behavior on a day-to-day -day basis but then there's going to be shocks to the system. And wouldn't it be great at times of high volatility or high risk in the system that you could actually call on collateral in real time? So that's what, from one area, from a risk mitigation perspective, I think there's a massive advantage there. But I also think that for global players, your ability to manage collateral globally and being able to move it between your legal entities or fund initial margin, variation margin, globally in real time is going to create a significant efficiency to global players and is going to reduce risk from the system, risk of default, which honestly sometimes will be because you just couldn't move collateral on time due to operational inefficiency within the organization and not really because you didn't have the collateral. And that that is not good. That's really not the intent of those things. So I think I see a massive opportunity for financial services in that respect. I think another interesting angle on collateral is that when you think about the ability to optimize collateral and to think, like I actually think that if you start thinking about smart contracts representing the model of how and what collateral is eligible, think about putting the eligibility schedule within a smart contract. And now you could in real time know that what you're submitting, and now you could actually have AI tools that could look at all of these smart contracts, look at all of your inventory, know that they can fund everything in real time, have all of the eligibility schedules all mapped out. I think the opportunity is, to be honest, kind of hard to even imagine how big it is. So I think you started with two use cases that are ambitious. I think they're big, but I think have quite a tremendous opportunity. Well, let me um, again plug the CDM because we have mapped, using the common domain model, eligible collateral schedules for initial margin. And now we're prepared to push that out into the market so people can use those to begin to automate. And we see it the same way you do, right? How do you optimize cheapest to deliver? What's in your inventory? What do you have with your counterparty? All of those things really matter. So there's a lot of potential to really automate that process and do so in real time. So that's quite exciting. We talked a little bit about the smart contracts and the interface between the distributed ledger probably requires the 101 basics here. How much smart contract can you actually, or do you want to put on the ledger itself as kind of the level one operating rule book 
How do you think about that from a technology standpoint? And you and you and your team are obviously thinking about that every single day. I would say that you would want to put it all as much information. And I think that the issue is not the want. It's the problem currently with all of these, at least public chains and even some of the private chains, is that if you're not capable of solving to the highest level of security and privacy properties that are needed, you start running into a lot of issues. And that's why what you're seeing in most public chains is really just a representation of a bare instrument that is effectively an IOU token to someone's private system that is not on-chain. It's an incremental improvement to today's world, but it's really kind of missing the mark from my perspective. I think that the opportunity is if there was a chain or a network that could adhere to highest level of privacy, meaning the right entities could see the right information you have the right authorization level, but also data locality rules. I mean, the, the world is not homogeneous. And I think that a lot of times people look at Bitcoin as kind of the inspiration, but forget that Bitcoin is just one use case. Bitcoin did not try to solve financial systems. It tried to create a bare instrument that is censorship resistance, anti-inflationary. That's the use case. So when you think about your members that are working on industries that span geographical locations, that span regulatory regimes, the world is not homogeneous. And I think one of the biggest issue in public chains is they effectively say, you either accept our rules or you don't. And I think that that's why it ends up happening is that what gets stored on chain has to be so minimal, so minimal that you can't trigger any of those things. And I think that that misses the mark quite significantly. So back to your original question, if there was something that could adhere to GDPR, data locality, highest level of privacy, I would say at that point, put as much data on chain because then you don't have to deal with all the reconciliation or all the lack of trust issues that you would have in the alternative which is most of the critical information will still be left off-chain. I had a debate with a, a friend about this permissioned and non-permissioned or, or open. So on the collateral question, so you got these stable coins. Why would you want to reinvent that? Use asset-backed stable coins, and those are open, whether it's Circle or any of these others. But then you kind of make an argument, which I think is probably closely aligned to how the industry thinks about it, a permissioned ledger, which you want to have all the right features and you're not just going to put it on Ether, blockchain or on Bitcoin networks. So you're going to want something more permission, but that's going to take, somebody's got to run that. Somebody's got to operate that. So how do you think about these relationships and and then, you know, mixing chains or, you know, crossing chains is always a, always a challenge. Well, maybe there should be an alternative that says that there could be a public chain that gives you all of the properties that I have shared. I mean, why only a private chain has the privacy properties? I don't think that that is or should be the case. I think that that's what the industry got used to, that if you're in the public chain, everything has to be public. I think that that's just not true. If you think about the internet, everybody thinks about the internet 
as a public network, right? Everybody can connect to the internet. But you still have a website when you go to the ISDA website and you have the member portal. Well, you need to have credentials to go through that portal. Not everybody has access to it, even though the internet is a public network, where if you go to CNN.com, their business model is, no, all the information should be available to everyone because we make money from commercials. But they live on the same network, right? So to me, I think that the actual opportunity is really to have a public network, a public chain, because there's shortcomings to private chains, not when it comes to privacy and scale, but actually more to deployment, maintenance. How do you get people on top of it? If you could create a public chain that could meet, and we believe that you can create a public chain that could meet the privacy rules, data locality rules, and fine-grained controls of different types of applications to run on it, then I think that that's the holy grail. That's the opportunity, right? So that's how we think about it. There are shortcomings to private chains. It's not that they are just better. So let me ask a quick legal question. When we think about putting everything on chain, some of the legal questions around smart contracts, are smart contracts law, is code law, you're used to having your bank account with your assets in there, or at least somebody registering that those assets are there and you've got a claim to that. You know, we want to make sure that these contracts hold up in law and the assets are where you expect them to be. Or if something does fail, what is your recourse for collecting on that? If you're sending a trade or collateral between here and Singapore and the ones and the zeros somehow don't show up or you lose your key or whatever the things that can go wrong on a blockchain, what is the legal recourse? Where are we at today and what should we be thinking about going forward? These are some of the questions we've asked. We've produced some papers on this kind of posing these important legal questions. Am I overthinking it or underthinking it? (laughs) I think that you're not overthinking the topics in the context of how the industry itself was educating and discussing a lot of these topics. And there were many aspects of what you just said. So I'll try to break it into chunks. If you go back to Bitcoin, Bitcoin tried to create a bare instrument in a digital form. Therefore, your keys are your assets make sense. Let's just take another example. If you were to tokenize real estate and I owned four floors, maybe in my future life when I have money, of the World Trade Center, did I lose my keys? That's it. There's no ownership of those four floors. That's nonsensical, right? And I think on issuer type assets that have an issuer, your keys are your asset just is nonsensical to me. That to me makes no sense. But let's park that aside. I think that there were other things that you started talking. Code is law. The funny part is that a lot of the people that were drumming code is law, code is law, and then lost a lot of money in crypto because there was a vulnerability in the code are now in the legal system trying to resolve their cases. So clearly, when the rubber hit the road, if you lose money, suddenly you you go back to the judicial system to try to resolve your issue. But I actually think that the interesting thing is that code could make the law more clear, right? I I think about it no different than DNA, right? What did DNA do? It just gave better proof of what happened. So I think that if you keep a record of a swap trade on paper and you write it and you had a verbal agreement, 
and one piece of paper got wet and the ink got smudged and it's not very clear. Well, it's hard to prove what happened, right? So I do think that code can make the law easier, right? You have a much more factual way to evidence what actually happened. And therefore, I believe that this opportunity with this technology and smart contracts actually will make the law easier to enforce because things will be significantly more deterministic and there will be less room for interpretation. So that's just my view about code is law. I don't think that smart contracts and blockchain technology circumvent the judicial system. I'm not a believer in that. There's things that countries consider as part of their sovereignty. And I would say that the judicial system is one of them. And I don't think that this technology is going to circumvent that. I don't think that this technology should be any different than any other technology. I find it a bit amusing why this technology have brought so much regulatory attention to, from my perspective, and all of the clients that we work with today, which is more than 40 clients that are all heavily regulated, I don't see why this technology cannot operate within existing regulatory regimes. I just don't. There are interesting business ideas, as we talked about earlier, like tokenized collateral, that you want to have regulatory clarity how this new asset that you have created, because you are creating a new asset, what would be the treatment of that asset? So I understand why you would want to have regulatory clarity with respect to that. But I don't see why this technology should invalidate existing regulation, cross-border, GDPR, all of those things. I actually think that you should be able, and I think that the technology allows you to operate within these regulatory constraints. I think a lot of people are, have come to that same conclusion, and they are looking for the regulatory certainty. Now, if you're in Twitter sphere, there's plenty of people talking about how this is going to break and change. So you haven't convinced everybody of that yet. But I think many of the people serving kind of the largest institutions and certainly the largest players in the crypto space are definitely looking for that regulatory certainty and not trying to break it. Yeah, and I'll take it one step further. Someone once told me, because when I started the company, I was a bit naive. It's like, oh, we'll just need to have this law pass and this regulatory. <laughs> and someone told me, if you're building a business counting on regulation to change to make your business model work, think of a new business to start, right? And I'm not saying that dissing regulators. I'm just saying they are busy, generally speaking, do not have the budgets that companies such as ourselves or other big companies out there have. And you just can't rely on regulation to change in order to prove that a technology has capability. And that's why I always advocate work on things that work within the regulatory regime and at the same time educate regulators like we said reg reporting tokenized collateral those type of things ask for regulatory clarity but i think that there's just plenty to do without it i'd like to turn for a moment to discuss digital assets work with market infrastructure and asx you guys have been a partner with that and and proceeding with a on-exchange exchange, I guess, or on-chain exchange is probably the better way to put it. How's that going? And also, maybe can you reflect on where you think the rest of the market is? Kind of taking those traditional infrastructures, where are we going to be in five years? Yeah, so I'll start from the end and go towards the, the front of the question. 
So first of all, like I said, I mean, we're working with 40, I would say, global organizations as of today. For the most part, I would say 85% of our clients are all within financial services. We're also in healthcare, insurance, sports wagering now, and even have a government agency that is using the technology. So I, I would actually say that the, the, the trend is heading in the right direction. I will also say that I was recently in, in Davos and I was in one of the talks by a global system integrator. When you hear their top priority in 2022 is moving to the cloud. And I guess the point that I'm trying to make by that is not to say that it's comical, it's just to understand. And I would say that the, the, the pitch of cloud to me is so much more trivial, so much more trivial. The fact that in 2022, number one priority is still migration to the cloud just means that moving financial infrastructure to new technology, and I'm not going to call cloud new technology, <laughs> takes time. It takes time. It takes regulators to get comfortable. It takes business owners to get comfortable. You need generations to move for people to have a much more open mind. It just takes time. And this is me not trying to be defensive. It's me trying to be realistic. So I take that statement around Davos and I pair that with 40 global institutions. We're not the only company in the space. We're seeing pretty much every major institution in the world either have a blockchain, DLT, crypto strategy, Web3. Microsoft recent quarterly earnings said that one of the eight pillars of their product is Web3. You are seeing Google making an announcement around a digital asset team. You're seeing that all over the place. It is happening. That doesn't mean that in five years, everything is going to run on DLT. It's far from that. It will take time. But what you will see in five years is you will see more and more exchanges that are running a good chunk of their infrastructure using smart contracts, whether on DLT or not yet to be seen. But I think you will see also on both. I think you will see banks pretty much issuing assets like bonds, banknotes, structure products directly on chain. You will see corporate actions, collateral moving, and you will see similar trends in different industries. You will see all of that in five years. Why? Because you see that already today, right? So I don't think that we need to wait five years. All of those things are happening already today in production. With respect to ASX, putting that in the context is that ASX did something that no other financial institution in the world did, which is really move an entire G10 economy from a 30-year-old technology to current cutting-edge technology. And that system, with COVID in the middle, with volumes going through the roof, is not a trivial task to do. Uh, what I will say is that the system can meet the non-functional requirements. It can meet the requirements, but it requires time to move an entire market. I will remind the listeners that when this goes live, it will move $2 trillion of assets daily. I just want to put it in perspective. The entire crypto market is right now 1.3, 1.4. At the peak was 2.5 or something, 2.7. This is just one use case is going to overtake that and with volume on day one. 
So you just can't take those type of things and treat it like a Terra Luna. You need to take those things very seriously. And we do, and our partners at ASX take it very seriously and are making sure that when we deliver this system, we deliver it responsibly according to the same standards of any other major financial infrastructure. Terrific. I'd like to end the podcast by finding out a little bit more about our guests. And prior to digital assets, you worked at Citadel and DRW Trading, where you managed Algorithmic Trading Desk. What made you decide to take the leap to be a co-founder in DA? And is it the technology? Is it the challenge of really hard stuff? What was it? So so I'm going to give you a very uh, unsexy answer here. It's very funny because my journey into financial services was a coincidence. I studied electrical engineering at Georgia Tech. And the only thing I knew is that I don't want to be an electrical engineer. (laughs) So I come from a family where my father was very persistent about me being an engineer. So I became an engineer. And at a career fair, someone asked for my CV and saw it and said that I should apply. And I then asked him, what is Citadel? And he said, it's a hedge fund. And I said, what is a hedge fund? And he said, apply. And that's how my career started in financial services. I just interviewed. They seemed like very smart people. The interview was very hard. I just took the plunge. And that's how I got into financial services. I was very lucky to work for DRW because DRW not only is full of smart people that are very successful, it is led by an individual that is very humble about his success. uh, And that's Don Wilson. And Don at least my experience personally, is a person that as long as you can justify risk and reward and you could explain it, he has no ego and is always open to new ideas. So DRW very early on came to Don and said, there's this new asset class called Bitcoin. And one of the employees of DRW got the permission to start Cumberland Mining, which is one of the largest OTC crypto traders in the world. So that happened while I was doing algo trading. And I was always had the bug in me that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I just always knew that I wanted to somehow create something myself. And again, Don and the team at DRW gave me the possibility to start DRW VC, which is the venture arm, which is has done very well since I left in the crypto space and other investments. So we started investing and I started looking at companies and Cumberland started operating and we started looking at crypto companies and Don and I started having a lot of conversation about what does this technology do to the world. And I, like I said, I was lucky to be at the right time at the right place, have the right environment, right mentor to get exposed to this industry very early on and realize that it's going to change our lives. So in 2014, together with Don, I decided, together with my co-founder, Eric, who is one of the guys who started Cumberland, to leave DRW and start Digital Asset. Fantastic. Yuval, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your perspective on these interesting and challenging matters. We look forward to seeing how Digital Assets evolves certainly how the whole industry evolves around this. And you've given us a a good five-year outlook and potential as well as some challenges ahead. So um, we're all in this together. So I look forward to working with you going forward. Thanks for joining. Awesome, Scott. Thank you.
Scott, there's clearly a lot going on in this space, and it was fascinating to hear Yuval's thoughts on how technology can bring efficiencies to derivatives markets. But can you talk a little bit more about ISDA's initiatives in this space? Sure. We agree with Yuval that there's a scope to achieve huge efficiencies and cost savings by replacing all the legacy infrastructure and new technologies uh, with new technologies like DLT and smart contracts. At ISDA, we've been focusing on our core strengths, which is promoting standards and driving strong legal foundations where appropriate. And I think there's a lot of appropriate areas in crypto assets and other technology-based solutions. We have developed the common domain model, which establishes a common digital representation of events and processes that occur in the life cycle of trade. It never existed before. We've also explored the legal issues associated with using smart contracts, which we talked with Yuval about on DLT, for example, and whether adding a DLT platform to a trading relationship has any implications for the resolution of contractual disputes. Super important. It's obviously important that market participants have legal certainty on these points. Investors, in particular institutional investors, highly regulated investors, are going to want to have clear certainty in bankruptcy and, and in case anything goes wrong. So we're looking at publishing further works on smart contracts and those legal perspectives as well. And these are just some of the examples that we're also thinking about digitization of our documents and enabling firms to negotiate and execute agreements through is to create our online negotiation platform. But that's a topic for another episode. I think you've all indicated this is a journey and we're all on it, whether it's moving to cloud or moving to DLT. We have to help the industry you know, put its best foot forward, do this cost effectively, do this at scale. And that's why we're working at such a fundamental level, digitization, standards for lifecycle events, standards for product definitions. Absolutely. It is a journey. And we're going to be coming back to this several times over the next couple of months. But for now, we're bang out of time. We do have an exciting lineup of guests over the next few months. So please do keep an eye open for our next episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time. 